Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Edward Assel, and this week's going to be a little bit different. Like most of the country, uh, Indiana has shut down all bars and restaurants and pretty much any other social gathering, which makes it very difficult to bring guests in. Additionally, I own restaurants, so it's been a particularly tough time for me. Some very hard decisions have been made in the last week. This is, I'm sitting and recording this uh, a few days early. This is uh, Thursday, March 19th. So we found out four days ago that this was going to happen. We actually had uh, made the decision a couple hours prior to the mandate. I'm an operating partner involved with four restaurants, and we have closed, until further notice, the Inferno Room, Black Market, and Rook. And we are keeping Siam Square, our Thai restaurant, open for carryout only, which is still permitted under the current mandate. We do, we do expect any day now for a shelter-in-place directive to be enacted. So I reached out to everybody on Instagram, social media, Facebook, et cetera, even Twitter, which I always forget to use. This week, and just do a little AMA. Ask me anything. It's funny, but most of the questions that came through were about alcohol. I've expected some weird off-the-wall stuff, but who knows? Depending on how long we're all locked down and going stir-crazy, we may end up doing this again. But uh, I do have a couple other episodes that are pre-recorded and ready to go out in future weeks, but I really felt it was important to address kind of the nature of what's going on in this business I've spoken to several customers over the course of the last three, four days doing carryout. We laid off our entire staff and it's just my chef, myself, my wife running the place. And I think a lot of people outside the hospitality industry really don't understand, I guess, how big of an impact this is having on us as small business owners. You know, a week ago we were fine and come Monday morning, you know, we had to make a decision whether or not to stay open um, or not. And especially our dining rooms where people congregate. And then we had to figure out, you know, how to lay off a staff. And uh, 12 years of being a restaurateur, I've never, never had to lay anybody off. Um, So... It's a tough thing. We're all going through it. It's kind of a level playing field. So there's that support system. I can tell you I've been in almost constant contact with friends, business partners, um, and acquaintances across the country. Uh, I would say on any given day, I'm text messaging or, or talking with friends that are bar owners from you know San Francisco to New York to London. And it, it seems to be universal at this point. And so I'm fully supportive of the measures to you know flatten the curve and let's see if we can get this under control. Hopefully we just come out the other side operating and everything's still um, moving forward. But uh, I have a feeling that the restaurant industry and the bar industry is going to look quite different in six months to a year when we have an opportunity to reopen if we do. So, but uh, enough doom and gloom. You know, we've had enough of that sticking around in our houses for um, last couple weeks. I posed the question on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, you know, uh, that I was going to do an AMA. And I've got a lot of questions that came through, and I'm going to go through them kind of one by one. Hopefully, I didn't leave anybody out. Anyways, let's get started. If you listen to my Asian series, it's no surprise that I was hanging around pretty much two particular bars the whole time while I was in Bangkok. And I've mentioned them several times on the show, uh, Find the Locker Room and Find the Photo Booth. Um, One of the partners there, Ping, was one of their very first people I met the first week I was in Bangkok. And he really kind of led me and opened up a lot of doors to me meeting the rest of the industry there. His question that he sent to me was red or blue pill? (laughs) So, yeah, that's a tough one now. You know, usually I would just immediately say, yeah, like, let's go for the red pill. I want to know the truth. In this climate, I don't know, maybe I want to go back to not knowing and being ignorant of all the mistakes being made, that in the government. But no, I I can't do it. I got to go with the red pill. I'm going all the way down the rabbit hole. Alice is calling. Eat me, eat me. We have to go down the rabbit hole. Ping, cool question, man. Uh, Definitely go with the red pill all the time. So the next one is from Kevin Franzen. And he posed a couple of questions. Kevin is actually was going to be a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago. He works with a liquor distributor in town and and, and St. Patrick's Day is a big holiday for him. And so he was really quite busy, had to cancel the interview. And we postponed it and postponed it. And now we're all under quarantine and, and we can't get it done. His first question was, hey, when are we going to jam, man? I mentioned on a few episodes that I'm a bass player, but I've been learning guitar over the last year and a half or so, something like that. Bass player for 30 years, I'm a pretty new guitar player, so I haven't made it too much out of basic chords and, you know, just learning some good, cool, fun metal songs and all that. Kevin, dude, when this shakes out, yeah, man, come on over and we'll drive my neighbors crazy. Let's just rattle the windows, you know? 
And his second part to this is, uh, what's the best metal band to listen to during a quarantine? It's an interesting question, and I think it's more interesting than most people would really, I think, give uh, credence to. But recently, I've been listening to Heavy Metal Historian, which is a podcast that was put up, gosh, six years ago, something like that, six or seven years ago. I've been binging it because I missed it at the time. I wasn't into podcasts in 2014. and uh, But there is an episode, and I can't remember which one, but... There was an episode called Ebola and Heavy Metal, and it kind of studies exactly that. It gives a little bit of a history lesson and a rundown of the Ebola crisis and then kind of how that seeped its way into hardcore music, grindcore, death metal. It's a fantastically interesting episode, even if you're not into metal, because we do start to kind of see the influences uh, in disease and the kind of modern phenomena and events, world events that get reflected in metal, in all music in general, but certainly the darker stuff always in metal. But having said that, you said, what metal band to listen to during quarantine? I don't know if I can peg it down to just one, because there's some really cool songs out there that we could do a uh, coronavirus playlist. Slayer's Epidemic would be high at the top of the list for me, uh, big Slayer fan. More modern-ish, I guess, would be Cattle Decapitation's uh, Bring Back the Plague. That definitely deserves to be on a playlist, and you can't make a disease playlist without adding anthrax first off they're called anthrax but among the living absolutely killer track and again i'm kind of an old school thrash metal guy i I love that stuff the most which kind of also brings me in i think overkill elimination would be one to add to that playlist but i think if we're going to say one band just like one band all in that this is going to be what I listened to during the quarantine. You got to go Carcass all the way. It's a library that I think fits the mood, fits the frustration, fits the anger, and definitely fits the topic almost across the board from album to album to album. Also groundbreaking music for its time. Obviously things every year that passes, we keep getting more aggressive, more hardcore, faster and faster, faster. I mean, Cattle decapitation is one of the best examples of like just how extreme we've gotten with like double bass. It's just, it's insane. But you know, I, nothing beats the kind of the old school guys did it the old school way, very physical music. And that's my recommendation. I, I would say, let's, let's go with Carcass as our band to listen to during quarantine. How well does the Inferno Room do compared to other non-tiki bars in the city? That question comes from John Go. That's an interesting question. I'm not sure. Um, it's terrible to say. But I've got my hands so full now, bouncing back and forth. Well, I guess less full in the last week. You know, bouncing between the four places that I really don't get out and drink as often is probably assumed from the podcast. I actually probably know kind of the cocktail scene in D.C. or Vegas or Seattle or Chicago better than I know my own because when I'm out of town, I actually have time to go out. When I'm in town, I just can't stay away from work. I think that it's very easy to do that when you're a bar owner, a restaurant owner. I mean, you can't even walk by it without poking your head in to see if everything's okay. And a 20 minute pop in turns into seven hours of work. How well do we do compared to non-tiki bars in Indianapolis? I think that we, we do pretty well. We quite surprised ourselves. I mean, being tiki folks ourselves, we knew that there's the, a culture of fanaticism that where people kind of collect experiences, right? I guess what we underestimated was the number of travelers that we would get coming through. And it's fantastically interesting. The first Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday during the week, we get a lot of -of out-of-town travelers, particularly Salesforce, which I don't even know what the hell Salesforce does, honestly. In fact, nobody at Salesforce ever seems to be able to answer that question either. Regardless, somebody look it up. Tweet me. What does Salesforce do? What's the company do? But anyhow, they've got some headquarters in San Francisco as well. So we see a lot of travelers from there. As And there's obviously in the Bay Area, a, a million tiki bars. It's kind of ground zero. And so we do see a lot of people from San Francisco, but we have people traveling specifically for us. It's interesting because we didn't anticipate that. We didn't think that we were doing something all that special. We were trying our hardest to make it special. But I don't think that we just realized how how quickly people would grasp onto it. We have definitely the best clientele that we could have hoped for. Like I said, Fanatic would be an understatement, and people have really shown us some very strong support. As far as the other other non-tiki bars in the city, I mean, we have some really great bars here in Indianapolis, and it's we've had a lot of the guests on the show, or the the owners have been guests on the show here. I 
think we hold our own. You know, I don't think that we're so niche. I think we probably do as much business as any other um, craft cocktail bar in the city. Now that the kind of stigma of using syrups and and fruit juices and drinks has kind of gone away, you know, in back, what, 08, 09, 10, I guess, you know, in Indianapolis, it really started happening around 2010, 2011. We, our first kind of craft cocktail revival bars opened. And there were several years there where, like, you just couldn't get a, a drink that had juice in it if you would walk into a bar. And I, this was happening in a lot of cities, not just here in Indianapolis around that time. You walk into a bar and if you tried to order a Mai Tai, if they even had the ingredients, you know, you would just be shot a, a shitty look that you were some idiot and you the mustached bartender would come over and, you know, lecture you on how his new boozy, bitter and stirred drink was only thing that you should ever have. And actually, you know what? Here's a perfect example of it. And this is an absolutely fucking true story, folks. I won't name the bar, but I was in Vancouver. It was a highly recommended bar. Every restaurant and bar we had gone to in Vancouver had recommended that we go there. See, there were two girls sitting to our left. I was there with my best friend uh, that lives in Washington State. He works for Microsoft. And he doesn't understand at all the fascination with craft cocktails. He's not against it. He likes a good tasting drink. He just, he's not in the liquor business. Bacardi's good enough rum. He likes the good stuff, but he doesn't have a guide. I set it up on myself to like, let's, let's go show you some, what I'm all about, like what we do and why our industry is so fun. So we hit several bars. We did a couple of, we hit a Caribbean joint that had an amazing rum list, of course, and hung out in Chinatown and Gastown primarily. But we went over to this place. There were two ladies sitting to our left in this very small bar. We sat down, he handed us the menu, and since it was pretty slow and chill, yeah, I did the, the dick thing that, you know, you don't do in a busy bar, and, you know, I said, you know, I'll, I'll take dealer's choice, whatever you'd like to make. He said, uh, listen, mate, I wouldn't even put it on the menu if it wasn't good, so here's the menu. So it just put a little bit of, of bad taste in my mouth, like, just off the bat, there wasn't a lot of hospitality, but I'm like, eh, whatever, we'll roll with it. He wasn't inclined to really describe any of his drinks. Uh, there were only six cocktails on the menu. I just ended up ordering a, a white Negroni, uh, which was apt. It did the job. And, you know, in the meanwhile, uh, two gentlemen came in and they sat just to our right, which I think almost filled the bar up to my recollection. I think there was a few more seats there, but it was a very small bar. And we were the only six customers in there. They sat down, the guy was real cool. I mean, the guest was super cool and he asked if he could make a Manhattan and the bartender started stirring it and he said, hey, could you do me a favor? Could you like maybe stir it just a little bit more? I like mine kind of a little bit more diluted. And the bartender looked at him and he said, 47 stirs, mate, 47 stirs. Have you ever read any books about ice? Actually, he, he called out a particular book. I can't remember the name of the book. We'll call it The Art of Ice. I, and maybe that was it. He said, have you ever read The Art of Ice? So here's a bartender asking a guest, have you ever read The Art of Ice? Well, you should read it. And most of our guests don't want to, you know, read a whole book on ice. I mean, Camper English certainly would love that. But, you know, it's it's not something that, you know, most people want to read. The guest being incredibly cool at this point, he's like, no, no, I haven't read that, man. He goes, well, you should. Because I know my ice. Like, I don't know anybody else's ice. I couldn't take my recipe from here and go down the street and make that exact drink with 47 stirs, but I know that my ice needs 47 stirs, and that's how I'm going to make it. And I looked at my friend Brian, and he, again, this is one of his first craft cocktail experiences, and up to this point, he had just thought that what we do in craft cocktails and the whole, like, vibe surrounding it was, it's just pretension and douchiness. And here was a guy demonstrating exactly that. And it was just so disheartening. You know, I had to tell my friend Brian, like, you know, it's it's not usually like this. We've chosen a poor bar and a very poor representation of what the industry is about and, and what the kind of the craft cocktail revival is about. It was a bit disappointing. The guy, again, was incredibly cool. He drank the, the Manhattan the way it came. And the asshole came back down to us and asked if we'd like another round. And we were so pissed about the way that he got treated that we were just like, nah, we're done, we're out, we're just cash us out. I mean, we'd planned on being there for hours, but after that show, that display of rudeness, we just absolutely weren't gonna have it, and we left and we went back to Alibi, actually, so I guess you can rule that out, that it wasn't Alibi. But uh, yeah, we just, we booked, because it was really hard to watch a bartender treat somebody like that. You know, we're in hospitality. I know that's a really long story that kind of like got off on the side there. That's just one of the parts of, uh, of the business that I wanted to address, you know, and again, hey, you know the show, we get on tangents, I'm getting on a tangent, 
if anybody guesses the bar correctly, I'll tell you you were correct. But honestly, I would have to hear it to remember it. I think it's out of business, but if I heard it, I would recognize it. This one comes from uh, Lindy, who was just a guest uh, about a month ago. She asks, how do you decide on restaurant themes? All right. I, I've done a few interviews with local publications. Um, I don't think I've shared any on social media. Uh, there's not a grand scheme. There is no big plan. None of this was by design. It all happened kind of very uh, haphazardly falling into it. I spent the bulk of my career in the beginning, anyhow, working for Buffalo Wild Wings as a shift manager. I did spend some time as general manager of a Korean restaurant and sushi bar. And I also uh, spent a little time at kind of an upscale uh, barbecue joint before that was trendy. And so we didn't do too well. We were definitely about 15 years ahead of the curve on that. But primarily I was at Buffalo Wild Wings. And so that's when we just made a decision that we wanted to do something on our own. And so we were doing it on our own terms. And that was my Thai restaurant, you know, with myself and my wife opened our Thai restaurant. We started build out in May of 08. We opened two weeks after Lehman Brothers failed. So perfect timing there. Yeah. And now here we are 12 years later, hitting the reset button and going right back to where we started. That, I mean, that was an easy choice. You know, my wife's Thai, our chef is really was the deciding factor there. I, we've known her for a really long time and she's badass. She's 72 years old. She's still in that kitchen six days a week. She puts kids to shame as far as her work ethic, what she gets done, needs done. She's the first one in there in the morning and last one out at night. We tell her to take days off. She refuses. She doesn't want to sit at home. So Black Market, uh, when we made that concept, when we put that together, it was really influenced from two particular restaurants. It was something that Indianapolis didn't offer at that time. This would have been like early 2010 when we concepted it. It was We opened in 2011, so it had to have been 2010 when we concepted. But the Publican in Chicago had just been recently opened and with that kind of German beer hall vibe, nose to tail dining. Um, utilizing all parts of the animal, and then also Spotted Pig. So those two restaurants really largely influenced us. In fact, the burger that we had on the menu for the whole tenure of Chef Micah Frank was very much influenced. Well, it was influenced by Spotted Pig. April Bloomfield's lamb burger, we ended up doing a, a lamb blend, but um, that was totally kind of, just, I say influenced. It was stolen from April Bloomfield. So that led to Rook, which um, was just a conversation I was having with Chef one day. We were bitching that we couldn't get a decent banh mi anywhere in the city. That led to, well, we could do it ourselves. And, um, yeah, the whole idea originally behind Rook was to open a small little, like, just banh mi joint, do it well, um, and provide to the masses. Within two months, I quickly realized I didn't want to just be making sandwiches every day for the rest of my life. And so we, I teamed up with my now business partner, Carlos Salazar, we talked about joining forces. We had spoken several times um, before, and he had, was taking business advice and just kind of hitting me up and that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, we joined forces, and um, within a year and a half, we relocated the restaurant um, to a much larger space with a big open kitchen, much more uh, sophisticated menu as far as like complexity, greater attention to presentation, all that. And so there is one, the last vestige of, of the old incarnation of Rook is still there. We still have Bonmi for lunch. Uh, we have one every day and it's a, it changes daily. But um, again, concept wise, to answer Lindy's question, like you can see kind of how the stream of consciousness happens. You know, there wasn't a design. It was just like we saw a need. The city needed things. You know, I live in Indianapolis. This is my city and I want my city to be fucking cool. And so I can't sit around waiting for somebody else to make those things happen. And so that's why we've made them happen. You know, if we want something that's a farm to table gastropub, which again, black market's now quite different under the tutelage of chef Esteban Rosas. But when we first opened it, it was just like very much trying to like do what Paul Kahn was doing in Chicago and the Inferno room. That was kind of an easy one. We got into Tiki, just got geeky about it. We thought about it for years and years and years and years. We kind of had to wait for all the douchey bartenders that refused to make the, uh, the aforementioned bartenders that refused to make anything that wasn't bitter, boozy, and stirred. Once uh, fruit juices started being more readily added and they weren't uh, kind of scoffed at and um, all of our syrups and things like that. Once that kind of went away and you started to see a little bit of the um, hint of it, the, uh, the Tiki revival coming through this way, uh, we waited until we were sure that it wasn't going to bankrupt us the first year, um, but we were already had a menu operating at Black Market. So my 
partner Chris at the Inferno Room was previously our general manager at Black Market. And so he and I kind of got a little wild with the cocktail list where we were effectively serving entirely an entirely tiki menu for the cocktails while the food that was coming out was pretty much farm to table, nose to tail, and didn't quite jibe, but you know, we, we did it until we kind of ended up deciding to spin it off. And that, that's what became the Inferno Room. In fact, I, we, I may have told this story on the podcast before, but the name, the Inferno Room came from a blazingly hot Indiana summer. Anybody that's been through Indiana knows how quickly the weather changes and our summers are incredibly hot and humid and our winters are bitter cold. Well, at least traditionally, last couple of years haven't been so much, but so the Inferno Room was born out of a weekend where they were predicting incredibly high temperatures. I think that it was supposed to be at 101 degrees and our dining room AC never could keep up at those temperatures. It never, it still struggles. We've had a lot of work done on it since then, but it really struggled back in those days. You know, I just went up to Chris, um, our manager, and I said, we're going to be dead this weekend. It's going to suck because everyone knows that our dining room gets hot as fuck and no one's going to want to come in here. Just a light bulb moment went off and I'm like, you know, it's, why don't we just own it? And Chris is like, yeah, we could take all that tiki stuff, you know, and, and when we say tiki stuff, we had just kind of like the throwaway stuff, the plastic lays, just kind of like the bullshit decorations you get at a party store. Because we had done an, a, an event with Martin Kate a couple of months prior. And so, like, let's get all that stuff. Let's pull it out. Let's put the, you know, torches out and all these, not tiki torches, but, like, actual bamboo lighting. Let's get all that stuff on the tables. Let's do it. And we'll just kind of do a pop-up in our own restaurant. And um, that's where the name The Inferno Room, we thought anyway. But I'd said, yeah, let's call it The Inferno Room because it's going to be hot as an inferno in here. It ended up being one of our busiest weekends of the year. At that night, we decided that it was a it was a viable concept and that we could actually turn it into a, a full concept and a full bar and kind of realize our dream. It wasn't until much later that we, I realized that I had subconsciously pulled the Inferno Room from Beetlejuice, um, Dante's Inferno Room, which was the brothel that uh, Beetlejuice visits in the model. But it wasn't until later that I realized where I'd pulled that out of my head. What's on your current TV show watch list? I like answering questions that are non-industry related. It's a great diversion from, you know, the stress, anxiety, and, and depression that I've been going through with the restaurant thing. So current TV show watch list. Um, I'll tell you what, I just finished the first season of I'm Dying Up Here on Showtime about, it's a fictionalized version of, of comedians at the comedy store in the 70s. You do get to see kind of some little like character cameos, not the actual actors, of course from like Richard Pryor and, and Carlin and stuff. But um, it's pretty cool. I'm sucked in. It's definitely character driven. There's no real, you know, major plot other than it all happens around this one particular uh, comedy club, which is called Goldie's in the show, but it's very obviously supposed to, to represent uh, the comedy store. Westworld just started. I've gotten about halfway through the first episode. I've got to punch through. I love the first two seasons. I'm just hoping that the current season doesn't lose it, but I haven't finished it yet. No spoilers, because I can't. I can't spoil it for you. Also, Curb Your Enthusiasm just r wrapped up as well, which is a bummer. I'm just dying for the new season of Curb, and it always takes like three years in between seasons. But Larry David is one of the most hilarious motherfuckers on the planet. Uh, his, his writing is incredible. That just ended, but yeah, it was a great season, as always. And then I guess... It's the only other thing I watch regularly is uh, Better Call Saul, the prequel for uh, Breaking Bad, but I... I think it's just some of the best writing on television. I think the writing may even be better than Breaking Bad was. The acting's fantastic. The writing's great. The production's great. The cinematography, I, you know, I try to pay attention to the, you know, the artistic shots and, and kind of it's stylistically, you know, immediately uh, what show you're watching. It's got that same vibe as uh, Better Call Saul. I'm not a cinematographer. Maybe we'll let our previous guest, Sven Kirsten, uh, chime in one of these days on creating a visual style as a cinematographer. One bummer, I was thinking about this today. The Dune books from Frank Herbert, there's been several shots at turning them into movies. David Lynch famously fucked it up in 1980, 81. Alejandro um actually, it never got made, but he created this like dream team of filmmakers that it, were green in the industry, had never done a movie. It never ended up happening, and they all went off and made Alien. So that's a pretty cool story. There's a documentary out there. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, if you Google Dune failed documentary or Alejandro Jodorowsky, I'm sure you'll find it. But I've just, it's getting, it's getting remade again now. I just wish with Game of Thrones having wrapped up recently, well, you know, in the last year, I wish that they would have picked up Dune and just turned it into a series. I think it would have made it as a television series. 
it's effectively Game of Thrones, but you know, in the year 10,000, it's still the feudal houses, all that. I think it would have been fantastic. I think it would have filled that that hole and that HBO left in its schedule with the departure of Game of Thrones. Uh, that That's what's on my list at the moment. I don't get a lot of time to watch television, so you know, I watch maybe an episode every couple of days at, at like two o'clock in the morning when I get home before I have to be awake at seven in the morning. What rums do I use in a Mai Tai? And that comes from Ultimate Mai Tai. Uh, on Instagram. I switch them up quite a lot and there's been a million different incarnations. I would say that my go-to usually has Clement Select Barrel or Barrel Select. I can't remember which way they have it phrased. Uh, I think it's Select Barrel. Uh, The Clement Select Barrel um, split base with either Rumbar Silver or Appleton, depending on like if I'm looking for that little bit of like funky freshness, usually I am. I, I really like it with the Rumbar Silver, or you could even go with the uh, with the Overproof. But I mean, I, I, the Worthy Park inside of Mai Tai is just fantastic, and I like it because you can change the rums around so much. That's one of the things I like about Tiki is that you know the specs can change so much. I'm not the specs themselves, but the flavor profiles can change so much just by switching out different ingredient producers. You know, he calls for two ounces of rum. Well, it doesn't say necessarily what brand you have to use. Sometimes it does. But, you know, by switching things around and playing with that, you can you can get quite different drinks. In fact, I mean, hell, Trader Vic and Don the Beachcomber did exactly that. I mean, they might have almost identical recipes for two drinks, but maybe one had a Puerto Rican rum in it and one had a Jamaican rum in it, and boom, two drinks. I don't think we get away with that so much these days, just switching the region and calling it a different uh, drink. But moving on, oh, wow, this is a whole list. I'll try to be concise which i don't think i've accomplished so far in fact i'm sipping on a tea punch now so i need to wet my whistle oh it's delicious i'm drinking the um claran saju well i'm just drinking a tea punch what's my favorite non-tiki drink i have some go-to's because i've gotten to the point now where i primarily drink only tiki drinks or um rum meat or maybe even like a rum old-fashioned i would have to say Depending on where I am, but you can get a pretty damn good 50-50 anywhere you go, even if you have to teach the bartender exactly that it's not 50% gin and 50% vodka. I can't tell you how many times that's happened when, I, when I've told them, can I get a 50-50 martini? Half vermouth, half gin. You can throw some bitters in there, which, I, you know, of course, I, I tend to, if I'm at work, have a martini after work, end up doing it with a uh, Dillon vermouth, Citadel gin, and then some orange bitters. That does it for me. Aviation would be another go-to drink. So those are both gin drinks. Um, Rook is primarily gin-focused at the bar. And Eli Sanchez, now at Mother of Pearl, he's left our group. You know, he built a hell of a list over there, and he t- actually taught me a lot about gin. I was not a big gin geek when we initially set out to put that list together. And so I would say, that, yeah, those are my two go-to non-tiki drinks would be just a really well done 50-50 martini or an aviation. How did I get into tiki? How did you first get into tiki? Again, that goes back to black market. We arbitrarily set out to become the rum guys in town. Again, this would have been 2011, 2012. I guess late 11, early 12. We got our hands on a license to serve more than just beer and wine. We could serve spirits. Chris and I literally just arbitrarily chose rum. It was the height of the bourbon craze. It was hard to get a lot of good bourbons. They were highly allocated. It was hard to get our hands on them. So that kind of ruled that out. We didn't know that much about scotch. Chris really hated gin at that time. And vodka would have been stupid. (laughs) So um, here's the 45 bottles. We have a flavorless alcohol. So we chose rum. And it was arbitrary. It was just because nobody else was doing it. We didn't know a damn thing about it. We weren't rum geeks. We didn't know anything more than they existed. So we Googled best rums of the you know top 20 rums that we saw. We saw that about 12 of them were in our market, and we bought all of them. A lot of things have changed. As anybody that's Googled a best, you know, a best of list realizes that it's usually a bunch of bullshit written by people that don't necessarily know what they're talking about uh, or they've bought into a lot of of the bullshit um, that you get from the marketing people from those companies. So most of those rums disappeared off the shelf within the the subsequent years. But we first got into Tiki because we started building that rum list. And the more we built it, the better our palate got, the geekier we got about rum. And it's really, once you start getting into rum, it's a hop, skip, and a jump over over to the Tiki world. Uh, I've referenced a couple times on the show, Simon Ford said that us 
you know, rum geeks are the uh, D&D players of the spirit world uh, because we have our own little uniforms that we wear. You know, we've got our Aloha shirts and all of our own slang, you know. And so, but he's not wrong. It's a very short, you know, stretch to go from rum into tiki. And that's that's exactly what happened for us. And so that happened pretty early on as far as early on to us getting into rum. Uh, we were not early on to the tiki revival, which started really happening in the 90s. And all of these questions, these last two anyway, and this one here as well, comes from on Instagram, West Virginia bartender. And what was the first tiki bar I went to? That's a tough one to answer. I would have to look up the dates online. I don't really recall. I remember the first few visits I had to a couple of bars, but I don't remember the first place I ever visited. I think the first one that really stood out to me was Lost Lake in Chicago. Paul McGee makes some of the best drinks you'll ever have anywhere. He's incredible. So yeah, that we could date that because he had already left Three Dots and a Dash. He was the opening operating manager of Three Dots and a Dash. And I also visited that place probably around the same time. I, I would think that it would be one of those two. And again, that's really late to the game. Holly Paley in Portland, Oregon would have been pretty early on as well. But again, I, I can't place my fingers on the years, but it, it would have been the three, one of those three. And that's going to like, you know, the Tiki Revival. In Indiana, we didn't have a place that was open when I was a kid. I guess the closest thing would have been uh, Lotus Garden, which is in the southern suburb of Indianapolis called Greenwood, which is where I lived. And Lotus Garden was kind of like that old school, you know, Chinese restaurant that has a million things on the menu, but you, you go get, get chow mein and they had the whole Tiki drink menu and unfortunately it's it's all sour mix and all those mix you know pre-mixes that um kind of sent tiki down at the toilet in the 70s and 80s but um it still exists it's been open forever i don't know a year but it's had to have been open since at least the 50s or 60s it looks exactly the same as it always has and they still stay busy and it's still a cool place to go visit the tiki folk around here still hit it on a pretty regular basis i get in there occasionally because i still live on that side of town well i live on that side of town again i've kind of made my way back south the older i've gotten but yeah I, I, as far as the the revival i think i think it would have been one of those kind of rolling into to the ones that came out of this like new wave of tiki that we're experiencing now. So rum or gin, desert island, where and why? I don't know if that's asking if I wanted rum or gin or which, which rum or which gin I would take, which would be a tough one. I don't know. When I think desert island, gosh, you know, I, my two big loves are Jamaican rum and Martinique and rum or an agricole style rum with made with fresh pressed sugarcane juice. I'm thinking island, it's going to be hot. The versatility of Jamaican rums and Martinican rums is, is pretty wide. Gosh, that'd be a tough one. I have to say I would probably, on a desert island, if I only had to stick with one rum, I would probably go take a bottle of Rum Fire or uh, Worthy Park Overproof. Both of those rums, are, are they pack a punch. You could dilute them if needed. They've just got a million flavors going on. I think that if I could only choose one, that those would be my choices. I, I, to narrow them down between the two, I don't think I could do. But I would go with an unaged one. I find myself drinking a lot of unaged spirits lately. Not that I'm against aged spirits. I have a whole whole collection of what, hundreds of bottles of, of rare and, and, you know, limited edition rums. But lately, I'm really just into like the, the pure essence of, of what's getting bottled off the still. And while well, I'm, I'm sitting here drinking now the Clarence Saju, or Saju, which I was lucky enough to meet uh, Michel Saju at the Velier launch for the United States. And... Um, just a really, really humble, fantastic guy making a beautiful product. So the second part of Day Tiki Dan's question, I, that's this comes from Tiki Dan on uh, Instagram, would be where? That's a tough question as well. I think at that point, though, I think I am going to say uh, either Barbados or Martinique. Uh, Martinique would be tough for me because I don't speak French, but I really do love it. Gosh, another option would be maybe Southern Thailand, but there isn't one particular island I've fallen in love with because... They tend to be full of uh, tourists. Um, so I guess if I ever find that Southern Thai island or, you know, uh, Vietnamese island that I'm in love with, maybe that would be it. Until such time, maybe if we do an AMA in a couple years. But right now, I think I'm going to stick with Martinique. That's, that's where so I'll be in Martinique drinking Jamaican rum. I might be thrown out and evicted. So then I guess I'll have to go live in, on Jamaica. Next up. Uh, oh, well, it's the same thing. Desert Island rum. Oh, okay. But a Desert Island cocktail. For me, that's an easy one. It would be a Mai Tai. Again, because of the versatility that you can kind of switch the rums in and out. But the Mai Tai to me is just the, the, the perfect balance of everything. You've got the nuttiness, the sweetness, the fruitiness. 
that you get the fresh, the greenness from the mint garnish. To me, it's the embodiment of the perfect tiki drink. I know that there's a lot of tiki people out there right now, like screaming at their radio or headphones. Well, if you're screaming at your headphones, that's going to look very strange. Yeah, it's not a zombie. The Mai Tai is still the one for me. We've talked in a couple of episodes, Trader Vic versus Don Beach. I mean, Don Beach definitely wrote the canon primarily. But I mean, you Trader Vic, come on. The guy invented the Mai Tai and he invented Crab Rangoon. That's like iconic. You can go anywhere in the world and get those two things. Yeah, I think that would have to be it. The next part of Greg Burns' question from Instagram. That's, this, these questions come from Greg Burns. Be a Desert Island album. It wouldn't be a metal album, actually. Uh, in fact... I would probably not do anything that had much lyrics to it because you're going to get sick of that real fast. As anybody that works in restaurants knows, you know, your 500 song playlist sounds like a great idea the day you open, but within a week you hate all 500 of those songs because you've heard them on repeat so many times. It seems like a big list, but it's not. So if you're just sticking with one album, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, is what I think is the, the greatest album ever recorded, which would be um, A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. Yeah, I think that that would be, there's so many layers. Every time you listen to it, you, you just get something different out of it, depending on your mood, depending on your listening format, whether it's headphones or, um, you know, your stereo or your car or at home. And, um, I mean, John Coltrane is, is kind of where it's at. If you want to know a little bit more about my, you know, background in jazz, um, if you find the... Um, the episode called uh, Jazz Clubs and Dive Bars, I think is what it was called. And we talked substantially about that. Who is your dream guest? Also, please get Jamie Boudreau on. That comes from Dark Bear Bar in the UK. Well, well I would love to have Jamie on the show. <laughs> we do all the, the interviews in person. We've yet to do anything via Skype or anything like that. To me, that's important. I like to talk with everybody one-on-one. -on -one. I've made some really amazing friends over the last three years because of it. And as long as we can, I'll continue to do that. But, you know, with the COVID-19, I'm not sure uh, how far we can go. And we may have to start Skyping some interviews. So absolutely, next time I'm in, well, if he's in the Midwest or I'm out West, then absolutely, I, th I would love to have Jamie on the show. But my dream guest, I think, I'm, I mean, not I think, I know, Luca Gargano is i mean he's the indiana jones of rum and spirits and he's just legend from limazon and velier and he's all the rare cool things that you want all go through lucas hands and he's a, he's a true renaissance man he's a true passionate i mean he's a photographer he's released released amazing books he's very much in tune with the communities around him he, he likes to work with locals wherever he goes in as much of a capacity as he can while he's still doing business. And again, I, I say all these things just from reading. I, I've met him a couple of times, but if you've ever been in the same room as Luca Gargano, you know that everybody wants to talk with him and, and you know, you scooching your way to the front can be difficult. I'd, I'd love to have Luca, go on, Luca on. I think that maybe I could make that happen in the next couple of years. Kate Perry works for the man, so maybe Kate can make that happen. And, and Kate, we're going to have to have Kate on the show as well. She keeps moving around the country. She's a moving target. So we had her on as part of the round table in Miami about a year ago. Uh, but I'd really like to do a one-on-one -on -one with her about Velier. What are some of your favorite books on Tiki or Asian Pacific culture? Oh, okay. I didn't write down who this question came from. Sorry about that. Our go-to, and this is because specifically my interests in the art, I'm particularly interested in the, in the artwork of New Guinea, particularly the Middle Sepik River Tribes. For me, my go-to books or my favorite books, the entire De Young collection, I think it's called the Jalika collection. They have books of the exhibit. The De Young Museums in, in San Francisco, if you haven't been, please go. It's absolutely amazing. It's a giant collection. The books actually... I got stuck carrying it through the airport because it was so heavy, I put my bag over um, flying back home. And this thing weighs a ton. I, I, I got to weigh this thing, but it's huge. And so they've actually got two volumes of it. I have both. Because of my interest in New Guinea art, that's exactly what we reach for. They're informative. They're also, you, you know, you've got the photographs, so you can kind of compare stylistic designs between the tribes and and illustrations and how they're depicting different themes or animals or spiritual philosophies or spiritual beliefs, I guess. And then there's one more and it's kind of, it's gotta be by the same 
publisher because the, the book looks very similar, but the Met has one that's a little bit easier to digest and it's called How to Read Oceanic Art. When I was in New York a couple of years ago, I stopped by the Met. It was a, a cold winter day. They have an amazing Oceania exhibit there. They've got a representation of, of a New Guinea spirit house over the entire room, which is just flabbergasting. It's hard to describe just how colossal it is. Much bigger than it would be in New Guinea, but I think that's really the first thing that grabs you when you walk in the room. So the How to Read Oceanic Art, um, it doesn't only cover New Guinea. It does kind of skip around to different areas, but there is a lot of information about the uh, New Guinea tribal artwork, and that's what fascinates me the most about the book. It's also much cheaper and lighter. It's not a hardback. You can buy it, I think, directly. I think I got mine through the Met store online because I didn't buy it while I was there by mistake and I got home and I regretted it. That Those are my, my favorite books um, completely on Asian Pacific culture. Next question is what is your perfect tea punch? The one that's in front of me. Uh, well, actually literally and figuratively. No, um, the one I have in my hand at any given moment, that's my favorite one. That changes a lot. Again, I don't do a lot of punch vu. I think that's what they call it. You know, when you, when you drink a little bit of sugar in with, a, with an aged Martinique and rum or a fresh sugarcane juice rum. Uh, right now, I'm drinking one with a uh, Haitian Claren. I drink an awful lot of uh, rum clamat per American, but I also like like just dirty and funky and olivey and that tapenade and truffliness. Um, so Dylan would be another one. Right now, that's not available in the United States. We stockpile as much as we could when we realized it was going away, but I think we're at the end of that now. But yeah, I think. Those are probably my go-tos, but uh, right now I'm really digging a tea punch with a Claren. Highly, if you can get it in your market, it's affordable and it makes badass stuff. Also from Velier Imports, so you've got all the information you could ever want on the label. Luca Gargano works very closely with the producers and, you know, they're adding more to the line too. A lot of people say it's like the mezcal of the rum world, which... It is Claren, yes, it's a sugarcane spirit, but it is Claren just like Cachaca is, is a sugarcane spirit, but uh, it is not rum. The reason I think people say that is because of production. It's more akin to, you know, kind of the very rudimentary rusticness of the stills and, you know, being made very much as a local spirit that is now kind of being introduced to areas outside of its native Haiti. It makes a hell of a tea punch, I'll tell you that. And like I said, I'm drinking the Saju right now, which is bottled at, uh, see, 56% alcohol by volume. So it's perfect. I like all my tea punches at 50% or, or above. Uh, I'm, I just get really disappointed when I get one made and it's, it's only 40%. It just doesn't have that, you know, that you need the little oomph. Tiki is trending. What is something about Tiki you want to see more of? And that comes from Ask Me Amaro on Instagram. I'd like to see more of a throwback. We've seen this kind of like modern day tiki trend rolling in the last several years, which is kind of this mashup between the kind of old school tiki places of yore and then um, kind of this Miami fern bar kind of vibe. I think it's cool. I dig it. I like neon as much as the next guy. I think it's cool. Um, but I think we've definitely seen a, a big trend of just everybody trying to copy one or two big players in the industry and it's just kind of homogenized everything. I know imitation is the greatest form of flattery, but um, I, I like to see people just kind of maybe, well, you know what? I'm just going to be a hypocrite on that and say, instead of imitating all the modern tiki bars, go back further. You know, let's all go back and look at Trader Vic and, and, and Steve Crane. And I would like to see that a lot more, uh, that kind of that old school Trader Vic's throwback. That's very much how we were influenced. And I, I'd like to see more of that. Uh, moving on, five ingredients other than rum that are a must for tiki drinks. I remember him saying cordial in this when I first read it, but I could be wrong. This comes from Thomas Dean. He's been a long-time listener. He messages the show quite a lot. It's a tough one. For tiki that are a must for tiki, that's a hard one. I would definitely pull out like Sip and Safari from Beach Bomberry and kind of have a look through. There's a lot of other like modern books that are addressing it and what you kind of need to have behind the bar. I don't know if I can narrow it down to like five that you like must have, but it, if we're gonna like stick with like non-alcoholic ingredients, I mean, you've got to have orja, you've got to have falernum, 
your juices that's a gimme but as far as like what you're going to need to buy there's some really really cool products out there banana liqueurs or uh, raspberry liqueurs and, and there's a lot of use for those but i don't know if i could necessarily say there's five that you must have on your home bar but that's like always kind of the fun part right the must-haves are going to be your rums you know your orja and your flanum and then you can kind of have fun with with a lot of the other ones and, and figure out uh, some fun drinks so yeah i'm going to give you a non-answer on that uh, mr dean uh, what is the best industry perk that most people don't know about? I just think that the best restaurant industry perk is the familial nature of it. And we're really seeing that again right now with all of us being, you know, out of work and closing our businesses and our livelihoods. And for a lot of people, that's, this is going to be the end. They, they, those places won't ever reopen. But I can tell you, I've been to so many bars across the country and you walk in and Immediately, there's always like certain drinks. I guess that would be um, something that people don't realize. But there's like certain drinks that'll send a flag up <laughs> that you're in the industry without even necessarily meaning to. You know, Negroni is a fast way, but although that's becoming you know a much more prolific drink now, it's getting the attention that it deserves outside of industry circles. I, I think it's the familial nature. Really, is that. We take care of one another because we've all been there. We've all had to deal with the bullshit of, you know, the asshole customers or some bro dude that's trying to flirt with the bartender or some drunk bachelorette party or drunk bachelor party. You know, so we, we've all been there. We've all dealt with some of the worst. We've all had to throw people out, even in, in the nicest of places. We've had, even in some of my upscale restaurants, it's just, you try not to, but... Yeah, so we all know that with one another. It's unspoken. I think that's why you see all of us out together in a pack at the end of the night. I do that a little bit less so these days. I try not to drink too often unless I'm out of town, and I usually drink too much, as evidenced on this show several times. That happens occasionally. But for the most part, yeah, I, I think it's the family. We're, you're all family. Once you're in the industry, you're family. And if you've been in it for a long term, you know, if you're a veteran, you're part of the club. This next one here is from uh, Dave Barry on Facebook. What is the worst semi-regular occurrence that people don't realize is a quick way to ruin a good day? If you come in and you're rude, you'll ruin our whole fucking night. And I've, I actually had this happen this evening. I had a, a guest walk in, stayed on speakerphone, no, no headphones in or anything, kept her speaker on her phone, talking quite loudly, was actually because we're carry out only now because of the lockdown for COVID-19 all taking orders at the counter, which I kind of do anyway, but she just kind of leaned over, parked herself lying across my counter, talking loudly on the phone, so loud that other guests couldn't um, hear me when I asked, you know, what they had ordered or what they wanted to order. I actually had to ask her to move at one point and, and stand outside if she was going to talk that loud. She started quote, really rudely talking about me to her friend on the phone and you know, it does, it just, it fucking ruins your night. It pisses you off. It's not that she ruined my night by doing anything in particular, but it put me into a bad headspace. And when that happens, it's hard to like rebound from that quickly. At least it is for me. I can't just brush it off, you know, like, oh, well, that was rude. And then she walks out. Like it sticks with me for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And it, it can, if you're, if you come in and you're rude, it, it can ruin your night, you know? Uh, and there's no reason for it. Being rude to somebody isn't going to get what you want to happen. Drinks taking too long. Being an asshole isn't going to make it come faster. If they fucked up your drink or you know you didn't get the right one, being an asshole about it isn't going to make it right. Almost every time you again what's the old saying, you catch more flies with with honey rather than vinegar or something to that nature, I can't remember. Just be cool about it. I, I'm from the Midwest. I know I say, you know, sorry a lot. We tend to say sorry every time we bump into anybody or accidentally cut someone off on a hallway or something like that and and but you don't have to go over the top but you know just a little bit of um cordiality you know i i think goes a long way just just be cool about it and then you'll make our night really fantastic if you come in and you're just a great customer so i mean even if you're not having the greatest night don't take it out on us you know that that's that's the hard one it, it's because it sticks with us it may not stick with you you go home you forget about it you know, like whatever, that was just, you know, I had, I got the wrong drink at a restaurant last night, whatever, no big deal. But for us, we go home and we think about it. Do they hate us? Are they ever going to come back again? Are they going to tell all their friends? Are they going to run to Yelp? Did I just screw up so badly that my boss is going to like be mad at me? 
or my coworkers are going to see my name called out on Yelp as being a shitty server or any of those things, you know? So it bothers you. It sticks with you. Just don't be an asshole. Things happen. We're all human. And we're almost finished here, folks. I know we ran long. Um, I didn't expect to talk this long, but uh, I got a lot more questions than I had anticipated. And I, I didn't get them all on here. And I apologize if I didn't get to address your question. I'll do an AMA again. This is actually kind of fun. Although my voice is wearing out. If you've noticed from the beginning of the episode till now that uh, it's getting a lot more gravelly. What is the best way to network within the industry? How do you meet influencers? That comes from Brendan McAvoy, which I think he is Tubby Does on Instagram. Brendan worked for us in a couple of different capacities over the years. I haven't seen him in a little while. Uh, he moved on and went to uh, Bigger Better Things. He's one of the greatest people we've ever had working for us. Just always in good spirits, very rarely uh, a com complainer and things like that. Like he was, he's just a great positive energy to be around. He also runs a podcast called Nerd Speak. So uh, I think we might have mentioned him on the show before, but yeah, Nerd Speak is, is Brendan. Oh, it's about that. It's a geeky comic books, toys, movies, etc. But anyhow, um, what is the best way to network within the industry and how do you meet influencers? I'll tell you what, Brendan, just go out there and fucking do it, man. In 2010, I didn't know a goddamn thing about anything. I'd set my mind to it and I did it. I, I mean, I fell in with rum and a passion really quickly. I didn't know that was going to happen. You just have to not be afraid to walk up to somebody that could potentially just blow you off and think you're some douchebag um, that interrupted their conversation and go up and introduce yourself. You know, the first time I met Beach Bum Barry, I was really, really nervous. Uh, I gave him a lapel pen. I owe part of my career to him. Um, my interest in tiki drinks, you know, largely stems from his grog log. Not largely, it entirely stems from his grog, grog log, Sip and Safari, and now he's got the new Sip and Safari that's available through Cocktail Kingdom, the, the 10th anniversary edition that's got more stuff in it. It's even better. I had to suck it up and just, you know, took a deep breath. I'm like, hi, sir. My name is Ed Rudisell and really love what you do, yada, yada, yada. You know, it's just um, going to industry events. I would go to, um, you know, you say how to meet influencers, influencers and networking. Go to the events, man. Go to BCB Bar Convent. Brooklyn or Berlin. I'm guessing Brooklyn's easier for you because I know you live uh, in Indy. <laughs> BCB is great or, you know, Miami Rum Congress, depending on your, your desires. But there's all sorts of cocktail festivals, cocktail weeks. Go to seminars. Don't be the guy that gets hammered and makes an ass out of yourself every night. That's definitely not a good way to ingratiate yourself with the people that you want to know to help further yourself in the business. The best way is to be the guy with the notepad taking notes asking the right questions. Um, and I know I'm very guilty of not asking a ton of questions in seminars. I still have that, like, <laughs> despite being comfortable in front of a microphone and people that know me in person know I'm equally as talkative in person uh, as I am with a microphone. But I don't know. It's just a carryover from high school, I guess. I don't like to be the guy that raises his hand and asks questions. And, and I miss a lot of information. And so I, I had to get over that because, you know, I was missing the answers to questions that I had. Luckily, the podcast has been a way for me to kind of uh, stem that and, and invite guests on the show and, and ask some deeper questions. Richard Seal is a great example. You know, there's so many great things to ask him, but uh, his seminars and symposiums are so dense that sometimes you don't think of your question until he's five topics past it. So um, just get out there, man. People are real cool. This business is full of cool people and the ones that are going to be an asshole to you, probably aren't worth your time anyway and you're not going to learn much from them regardless find people that, that jive with you but the only way to do that is just be places where you feel you aren't supposed to be insert yourself into a situation not rudely but you know introduce yourself to people hey i'm a bartender or i'm an aspiring bartender or i'm a home bartender or i'm really interested in rum for no reason other than i just like rum or I got the joy of mixology. You know, what do you think about it? I mean, you know, what it what doesn't matter where you are and whether you're a home bartender or an enthusiast or just a casual, you know, intellectual that wants to read about things. The way to do that is just kind of make yourself available and, and be in those places. And I know sometimes that's easier said than done, but find the cocktail fest, find the cocktail weeks, find some seminars, find some tastings and just chat. And Brendan in particular, I mean, I know that you're a, uh, a pretty affable guy and, and people like to be around you and that, that should be really easy for you. But, you know, for anybody out there, I mean, to, to network, that's that's how it works. But, I mean, you certainly can't discount Tales of the Cocktail to network. If you want to meet everybody in the business, that's where to be. So the final question tonight, 
As someone outside the industry, I'd like to hear what you and your colleagues suggest the rest of us can do to help your businesses and employees. I've seen some creative ideas from bars around the country, including selling mixers to go and sending a newsletter with recipes for those who donated to a GoFundMe page for employees. But I'm sure there's other great ideas out there for folks who want to make sure their favorite bars come back strong and the folks who work there uh, make up for the lost income while they're doing the responsible thing and staying away for, for everyone's health. That comes from Bob Rowan on Facebook, I believe. I didn't write down where. It's a great question. There is no magic bullet to this, man. I wish there were. Um, there's just so much uncertainty. We've had people buy gift cards. That's helpful. That's incredibly helpful right now. What I'm seeing is a lot of people don't have the infrastructure set up for online gift card sales. So, you know, if they've had to close down due to, well, the quarantine or shelter in place or anything like that, then that, that makes that very difficult to do. Online sales is, is definitely a good way to do it. It's just going to depend market to market and bar to bar. Like I said, in a Facebook or I'm sorry, an Instagram post uh, about a, a week ago, you know, we put some discontinued mugs from the Inferno room up that we had in our own private stash that were to be just on my shelves as, you know, the memory of the mug that isn't going to be made again. But we uh, we put a few of those up for auction on eBay and, you know, all, with all proceeds going to our staff because there was only 500 of them made, you know, whatever. So it's not like an incredibly rare collectible. I saw that Tiki Diablo or Danny Gallardo, he also did the same. He, he donated some mugs, uh, and Diablo makes some of the most badass mugs out there. I think the best answer to that question is ask the people that you're trying to, to work for. Uh, we had a guest last night ask me if he could get some money to over to our employees somehow through Venmo. And so he Venmoed me, and then I distributed it to everybody on their, on their payroll this week. You know, there's there's a lot of things to do, but unfortunately, any place that's closed, it's it's very difficult right now, and we are going through a very hard time. And as I said earlier, there's going to be a lot of bars and restaurants that don't come back out the other side. Unfortunately, with the slim margins that we operate on in this business, it's just the reality of it. You know, um, most of us have very few cash reserves. Rebecca Kate put up a, a fantastic post last week about it, about the kind of whatever you're just being asked to sit home and, and watch Netflix. It's not that hard, folks. But it is for us. It is for the restaurateurs and restaurant workers because we're doing everything that we can to still provide food, not only for ourselves, but, you know, if we can open for carryout, we're also doing that for our guests and, and also trying to do that in a responsible way. Um, I think I would just try to reach out to, to the owners of the places you want to support and ask them if there's a good way to do it. Um, right now, there isn't a magic bullet um, other than please write your senators, write your your congresspeople, the president, the vice president. I wouldn't hold my breath getting uh, any sort of reaction there or, um, or even it being read. But, uh, you know, I think that um, we have to keep pressure on the government. You know, we bailed out banks in 08. Um, they're talking about bailing out the airlines now. And my fear is that... Um, with this crisis that we're going to see a bailout for large large corporations and that the mom and pop shops will largely go away. If that happens, we're, we're gonna see depression level unemployment and we certainly hope that, that that's not the case. Um, but again, so that's gonna do it for this episode, folks. I appreciate you tuning in as always. And you know, we're gonna, we've got a couple of more in the can. So um, we're gonna be talking Tiki again next week and then we're going to be talking about Fernet the week after that and then um you know hopefully all this is starting to subside and the curve is flattening and and we're all back to work and uh, we can all talk about this in a year and as a bump in the road but um we're taking it day by day um i appreciate all of you that reached out and asked about our restaurants and our restaurant group but um we're all in the same boat so you no matter where you are in the world you know uh, reach out to your local restaurants and bars and see if there's anything you can do to help them. And, and of course, we're, we're hoping that, you, you, that you're in a good spot as well. We know that people aren't going to work and, and money's drying up everywhere. And, you know, we, we hope the best for you as well. Again, you can always get me, shiftdrinkpodcast.com. There's email through there as well. You can find me on Instagram at shiftdrinkpodcast, Twitter at shift underscore drink. And then we're on Facebook as well. Leave comments, send messages, send questions. You know, right now, 
uh, other than doing a lot of carryout orders, I have nothing to do. And I, I'd love to hear from you and, and answer as many questions as I can, if you have any, as I've done today. And um, yeah, it seems trite, but I guess, you know, rate the podcast um, on iTunes. You know, at this point, there's much more important things going on than a podcast. So th- this, as I've always said, is the, the thing that keeps me sane. You know, I'm going to try to continue to do this throughout this whole crisis. Even if I end up getting sick from the virus, I, I guess I'll be quarantined then and I'll have to sit down and, and do what I can from home. This is the part that, you know, reminds me that this is one of the best businesses on the planet. I love hospitality. I love the people I work with. I love the people who work for me. I love the community. Um, I love the, my rum family. And I hope to all of you out there are are taking care of yourselves. And um, I hope to see you on the other side. Until next time, guys. Salute.